Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Are you in recovery and chose to tune in for some inspiration? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you are here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of this podcast. I spent most of my life drinking, and eventually I realized how alcohol was negatively impacting my life in many ways. One day at the age of 39, I decided I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, and I reached out for help. I have been sober since 2012, and it has changed my life in ways I never imagined. I am so happy that I got the chance to live a more comfortable life, free of the chains of addiction. Today, my life just keeps getting better. Sober Gratitudes was born out of the desire to recover out loud so that others could see the hope in sobriety. In each episode, I speak with a recovered alcoholic or addict who shares how their life changed for the better after they got sober. I welcome you to subscribe to my podcast to hear these amazing stories of people from all walks of life. They too want to share in this mission to help others and to end stigmas of addiction. I promise you, you will be inspired. Whether you have been here before or you were a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a minute to write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again for dropping in today and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. everyone. Welcome to Sober Gratitudes, Season 2, Episode 3, with Wayne of The Soul of a Phoenix. Wayne is a substance abuse speaker with over 34 years of sobriety, and he tells us his story of hope, tenacity, determination, and redemption. It's truly a beautiful story, one that you do not want to miss. So without further ado, welcome Wayne. Hi, Wayne. Welcome to Sober Gratitudes. How are you today? I'm doing well, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on my podcast. We've done a lot of talking before our official recording here and getting to know you um, more and more has gotten me more excited to have you on my family of people in recovery on Sober Gratitudes, because you definitely have a great story. I've only heard of bits and pieces of it because I do like to be surprised. But um, for the listeners, Wayne and I were connected over Twitter, which has seemed, I seem to find a lot of people on Twitter and people find me on Twitter as well, which is great. And Wayne, um, he reached, I think he reached out to me. I don't remember who reached out to who, but I saw the soul of a phoenix. That's your, your name on Twitter. And I thought, oh, that's intriguing. And, and your offer to come on my podcast was just so humble and so gracious. And I thought, I, th- I think I need to talk to this, this man in, in um, recovery. So here you are. <laughs> I, I, am, I really am so happy to be here. And yes, I, I chose the soul of a phoenix because, you know, there's the picture of a phoenix that, you know, the, it, it's, uh, 
a mythic bird that rises from the ashes to 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 rise again and that that's what i think we are all doing in recovery we are we are rising from the ashes that we you know we caused in our our former lives and uh we we start anew and that's that's why i picked that name that's beautiful that is so beautiful well you know it wayne if you can uh, start from the beginning from us uh, what was life like for you before you found sobriety uh, it was it was at the end it was horrific um in the beginning you know when it first started um my, well, first of all, I, I'm a third generation alcoholic. My, my grandfather, my dad's father, he died in a car wreck when my dad was 17 while he was driving drunk. And then my dad was, you know, a full-fledged alcoholic. Um, he hit his peak when I started high school. And, uh, you know, all I would ever hear from my father in his either drunken state or hungover state was how I wasn't going to amount to anything. You might as well just go get a job at the plant and that's the best you're ever going to do. And you're never going to, so I heard that a lot. And, uh, I, the, my first drink was after a high school football game, my sophomore year, a friend of mine, um, talked somebody into getting a fifth of, cherry vodka and we walked around the neighborhood and uh we drank most of it and i blacked out my first time drinking alcohol my, my father had given me sips of beer and stuff like that but that was really the first time i i had alcohol and it was just a a, a very quick spiral down from there and i started smoking pot and the high school I went to made High Times Magazine top 10 school for the availability of drugs so I could have anything I wanted. And I did. All of it. I did acid, and mushrooms, mescaline, speed. I, I, did, I tried everything. Um, by the first part of my junior year in high school, my parents would drop me off at the front door and I'd go out back and uh, I'd get stoned and go to whosoever house was skipping school that day and we would um do whatever by my uh middle of my junior year of of high school i dropped out so i, I was 16 dropped out of high school so it gives you an indication of what it was like um at 17 i uh got in an argument with my parents and uh, i decided i was going to hitchhike to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma from Omaha, Nebraska. It's about a 500 mile trip. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, the, the whole story about that, that hitchhiking trip is a story in itself. Um, but I, I went to see some friends, stayed down there for a while. While I was there, they had a little get together. They had some friends over and uh, there were two choices for cocktails and gin was one of them and I uh, decided to try gin and that was the only time I've ever drank gin because that night I must have become very obnoxious because I woke up in their their little home office tied up like a rodeo calf with my hands and feet behind me 
And I woke up out of a blackout to see my friend's husband standing over me and uh, undoing his belt buckle and pulling his pants down. And uh, I, to this day, don't know for sure what happened then, but I, I, I am very sure that I was pretty sure that I was sexually assaulted that night. I woke up the next morning, uh, you know, alongside the interstate highway in Oklahoma City with all my stuff from my backpack strewn around me. And uh, yeah, I, I don't remember to this day how I got back to Omaha, but, you know, looking back on it all, I think that <laughs> I'm sure that that played a big part in it. My, my alcoholism. So, um, you know, from, from there, it it just, it got worse and worse. My drinking at 18, I got my first DUI. Um, you know, I was lucky to live through it. I, I was a bartender. (laughs) Imagine that 18 in Nebraska. It was, a you know, it was a state to let 18 year olds drink, but so I was a bartender that let us drink on the job and, uh, somebody at the bar would always have a party afterwards. And I went to the party that night, and decided I should go for a drive after that. And uh, I ended up going, driving my little car up onto a guardrail, down 18 of those little posts, and ruptured the gas tank and, you know, one inch to the right. And I'm rolling many, many times down a very large embankment and, ruptured the gas tank so one little spark and I would have been up in flames you know God was surely watching over me that night but you know you don't think about that when you're in that state um when I was 20 20 I think it was 2021 I I moved to Vail Colorado I was going to be a ski bum and uh we moved out there and uh that's where I became intimately aware of cocaine you know, this was um, in the middle to late 70s, and it was prevalent, especially in towns like Vail and Aspen. It was, there was just cocaine all over the place. Our next-door neighbors would, um, you know, they would borrow stuff. They, our next-door neighbor was a friend of my roommate, a close friend, and he had a key to our apartment. He would borrow pots and pans or food, and they would leave lines of coke on the kitchen table. I mean, that's how prevalent it was. My boss where I worked at the lodge at Vail, he would, um, he, he would give me cocaine to keep me going because he was so short staffed. So he would, you know, on Christmas of that year, I worked 24 hours in a row and it was all because of the cocaine. Um, in Vail, I got my second DUI and, uh, yeah, I pulled into the apartment parking lot. The cop was behind me, a police officer and uh, I spent the night in Vail Jail and uh, next morning because nobody had uh, bailed me out they transferred me to Eagle County Jail and uh, it was there you know they were booking me and doing all, all the stuff to me that they do when they book you into a county jail um, and a, a phone call came down See, I, I still remember, I still have a picture in my head because it was downstairs and a picture came down to the area where they were preparing me 
that somebody was there to bail me out. And my dad, of all people, um, had caught a plane to Denver and driven 150 miles to Vail, and he bailed me out. So I remember getting out of that place and falling to my knees so grateful that I wasn't going to have to spend any more time in a jail. It's there that I, I knew that I would never be capable of staying in jail, which would help me in the future, alluding to, you know, that. But, but again, you know, God was definitely watching over me, but I wasn't paying attention. So I moved back to Omaha. I always went running back to Omaha and uh, I, I got a job at a, a, a national chain, a restaurant, Chi-Chi's Mexican restaurant. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I was a bar manager of all things, you know, hen, fox watching the hen house there. I did that for three years. And by this time, my alcoholism was way out of control. I couldn't drink without, you know, blacking out for sure. I would uh, wake up in the morning um, after going out and, you know, I wouldn't remember how I got home. I would look out the window and uh, see if my car was there, you know. If it wasn't there, it was kind of good because I knew I didn't drive home then. But at the same time, then I had to go down my, my call list and find out where my car was because I didn't remember. So it was there in Lincoln, Nebraska that I, um, I got my third DUI and um, I got sentenced to uh, 90 days in jail or 90 days outpatient treatment. So the choice was obvious and I, I went to the 90 days outpatient treatment and uh, that's when my life started turning around. You know, there at the end, I had been on a, uh, on this merry-go-round where I tried to get sober by myself and I'd go a week, maybe sometimes even two whole weeks without drinking. And then I would think that I had it all under control and I could go out and have one, you know, I can go out and be drink like a normal person, but it would always end up with me waking up the next morning and there'd be you know a, a mostly empty bottle of Canadian club on my nightstand and you know it was back on the merry-go-round and I, that was the merry-go-round I was on you know the the last three years um, so you were always a blackout drinker yes yes I mean I could not drink without I, I very, very rarely could I go out and just have a few. I mean, I just couldn't. I, uh, yeah, I could, you know, not to brag, it's not something to be proud of, but my tolerance had been gotten to such a level that, you know, I, I could drink almost a, you know, a fifth of whiskey and uh, still be walking around. I wouldn't remember, but I'd still be walking. So, you know, and it was there that I knew that this was not normal. I knew that I had a monkey on my back. And like I say, I had tried many, many times to get it off myself. And, but I knew I, I, I'd learned that I couldn't do it by myself. So when I got sentenced to outpatient treatment, I was not resistant at all. I was happy. I, I was like, 
I'm very excited about getting help because I knew where I was going. If I kept going the way I was, I would either end up in jail, dead, or killing somebody else. Um, so that's where my mindset was when I arrived at treatment. And I, I realized that some people, that's not where they're at when they get to treatment. But that's where I was, and I'm. I'm I look back, and I, I think that was a, a big key. I, I, I had pretty much hit my bottom, and uh, I'm just, you know, lucky that I didn't hurt somebody else. I'm lucky to be alive. I mean, God was definitely watching over me because I could sit here and tell you horror story after horror story about things I did while I was drunk that you, you just. I mean, they're just, it's amazing that I'm alive. So I'm just going to leave it at that. So th that's what it was like while I was drinking. And um, so you when know. you were in jail, Wayne, that's when, that's when it stopped for you, the drinking. Uh, no, I actually, when I went to jail, there was, there was, um, I don't know, three years after that, that I kept drinking. You know, and I, when I, it was when I got my third DUI, I went to jail after my, my second DUI. Okay. And, uh, I, I drank for three years after being in jail and then I got my third and, you know, that's when it was like jail or treatment. So I'm like, I'll, I'll take the treatment, please. Of course. So, but you know, for me, it, it was perfect. I mean, it was, uh. You know, I had to go or I go to jail. They, they did testing where I was at. They did, you know, a urine test. And, and literally, I saw people escorted out of our meetings when they failed the urine test. Police would show up and cart them off. So I, I knew that I had, to, um, I had to stay clean because I had learned three years before that I was not the type that would do well in jail. I've always, uh, I just wouldn't do well behind bars and I, I knew it. So it was a huge motivating factor, you know, the fact that, you know, you do this or go to jail. So I was, yeah. And, you know, I, uh, I did, I worked the program, started going to meetings and um, my life completely changed. The way I saw things was different. When I got sober, I, I vividly remember like I was being given a second chance, like a whole new chance at life. You know, I can, I just felt like, okay, I'm starting over. I can do, I can make of what my, I can make of myself whatever I want. I can, it's a clean slate. So the first thing I did was I actually, I was living in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I knew that I, um, to stay in that environment with the friends, they called themselves friends, but as I found out, they weren't really friends because once I quit drinking, I never saw them again. But I moved to rural Nebraska to an old farmhouse that my uncle had been remodeling and uh, completely got out of the environment that I was in. And I think that was another key for me getting sober. And I know it's not possible for a lot of people, but I completely changed my environment and my whole new set of friends because 
I knew that if I stayed there, I would be sucked back in. I just knew it. So I moved to this farmhouse. And this is an important point. That first day in that farmhouse, I sat on the front porch with my black lab little puppy and a cup of coffee in my hands. And I watched the sun come up. And I said a prayer to a God that at that time, sorry, that I really wasn't sure there was one. So I was kind of saying a prayer, you know, just in case. You know, there are a lot of people that I'm, I'm going to do this just in case, you know, there. And that's where I was at in that point. But I, I made a deal. Keep me sober. Get me through school. And I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want, you know. So I made this pact. I made a pact with God. And it, it's like life does. It went forgotten for a long, long time. You know, I, but from there, I did go back to school. And, you know, my, five years later, you know, there were, there were some hurdles in the, in the middle of it. I actually moved back in with my parents and my father who um, became sober after he saw how, how I, much happier I was and how much better things were when I got sober. My dad has 33 years of sobriety because he saw what I did. But I moved back in with them to finish school. Five years into sobriety, I, I got a bachelor's degree in computer science. It was kind of odd. One thing I learned about going to school, you would think it would be about computer science, but this is what I learned about school, is that when I was in junior high and high school, everybody, well, my parents, my family, they would say, Wayne, you're not good at math. You know, you're not good at math. Well, to get a computer science degree, I had to have a lot of math. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of math. So when I finally got my degree, the thing that I learned most from getting that degree is to never let anybody tell you, you can't do something. That's what I learned. So, you know, I, uh, I, I got my degree and, uh, from there, my, my career, it was, uh, it was kind of the dot-com, you know, boom then. And, uh, I worked on a type of computer that, you know, again, God was watching over me because, uh, you know, in 34 years, I, I've only been without a job once. So, so the whole time I'm going to school, I'm going to meetings and, and life is, is good. And when setbacks happen, uh, they were easier to deal with, you know, before when I was drinking, it would have been a bender um, for sure. Every time that something happened, I lost a job while I was, you know, going to school and it was, you know, it ruined my plans. I had it all mapped out. But anyway, my career flourished. I, I got a job offer in Colorado. And uh, one of the ways I've stayed sober is I've poured myself into activities. I, I look back. I didn't know I was doing this at the time, but I, I would pour myself into activities. When I moved to Colorado, I started, you know, hiking in the mountains with friends. And, and that quickly turned into 
climbing what they call 14ers in Colorado. They're mountains that are 14,000 feet high. And um, I ended up climbing 23 of the, the 14ers in Colorado. And, you know, the difficulty I kept getting harder and harder. And um, it got to the point where I was doing the 14, 14ers in the wintertime by myself just to make it more and more difficult. I finally got to the point where it's like, okay, I want something even bigger. And I went to Alaska and I tried to climb Mount McKinley in Alaska, wow. which is 20,320 feet high. Yeah. I learned, I, I, you know, I, I just take a side note there. While I was climbing Mount McKinley, it's a huge mountain, absolutely huge. And to look up at it, you, you just get overwhelmed. I, there's actually, you actually climb more, do more climbing on Mount McKinley than you do on Everest from base camp to the top. But to look up, it's, it's just overwhelming. And my training, my, my, um, when I was in recovery, because I was in recovery, it occurred to me that I can't look at this whole monster of a mountain and get overwhelmed by how big it is, I'll just quit. And it's so much like when you're in recovery. When you're, I know for me, when I was first in recovery, when I, you know, first getting started, I would look at, and, and it would just freak me out. This is a lifetime deal I'm doing here. Recovery is for a lifetime, you know, and the thought of not drinking for a lifetime was overwhelming. So, and that's, you know, as well as I do that, you know, that's where the saying one day at a time comes in. Well, one day at a time completely, you know, carried over into Mount McKinley. It, it's like, you know, a lot of times because I, I was carrying an 80 pound pack and pulling 30 pounds behind me on a sled. A lot of times it was one step at a time. So that's what I was just how, thinking. I was like, it must have been at times just oh. half at a time. <laughs> I mean, wow. it, it was, you just couldn't look too far ahead. And that's so much what recovery is about. You, if you if you try to look at it like I have to do this for a lifetime, you will completely freak yourself out and give up. You know, so you, you, you can't look out. You know, you have to take healthy bites. That's the saying they, they, there is about climbing um, big mountains. And it's true with sobriety. You know, it's like eating an elephant. You know how you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And, and that's the way recovery is. It's the way climbing mountains was. You know, just another, I, I didn't end up getting to the top. And, you know, for, I didn't let that cause me to relapse. I was like, you know, there is nothing more important than my sobriety. And just because I failed at something I worked for two years to do um, is not going to get me to drink. And I think that's what we all have to do is we have to realize that our sobriety is bigger than anything in our lives. There's only one thing for me that is more important. That's God. So after I failed there, I went to Argentina and actually tried to climb a, a mountain down there. It's called Aconcagua, but I, I got altitude sickness and uh, I made it to 18,000 feet. And, uh, and I got sick, came back, and uh, that was pretty much the end of my climbing career. I, I had learned that 
my body makeup. Some people are meant to be at altitude and other people aren't. And I, I got sick. And again, I didn't let that throw me off. So the, the next thing I, I threw myself into was golf. And I won't, you know, bore you with a whole bunch of golfing stories, but I went from a, a total hack to, a, you know, I won a few amateur tournaments. And there's a, yeah, whenever I speak, there's a few analogies about golfing that I think really apply. Um, when you're golfing, you know, there are fairways that if you stay in the fairway, you score well. And there are, there are, you know, there are sand traps and there's trees and there's all kinds of stuff. So if you get off to the side, you don't score well. And that's a lot like sobriety. You have to stay in the middle of the fairway and you get off to the edges where you you're not going to score well. You're not going to do well. So you need to just stay in the middle of the fairway. Don't, don't risk doing things that endanger your sobriety, you know? So, um, after, after my golf career, well, what ended my golf career was getting married and a child and, um, you know, for the next, (laughs) yeah. Um, but I gladly put aside golf when my son Jacob was born, who's now 15, going on 25. Um, You know, I see some of my um, characteristics in him, the rebelliousness and stuff. But um, he realizes that I'm an alcoholic. Grandpa was an alcoholic. His great-grandfather was an alcoholic. And uh, he knows that he has to watch out for it, that there are elements of it that are hereditary and he is in danger. But so I poured myself into my son for, you know, still am really. But um, when he was like eight, um, you know, he started playing baseball. I was a baseball player when I was younger. So um, I started coaching his baseball team. And, um, you know, and this whole time I'm going to meetings. I have to say that the more time I've been sober, that the meetings have gotten fewer and fewer. Um, but I've, I've always known. I, I think this is part of my success is that, again, my sobriety, my sobriety is the most important thing. You know, at this point, when my son was born, I, I, you know, I had a career, I had a house, I had cars, I had, you know, I had the typical, you know, white picket fence American life. And I knew that if I took that one drink, and that's what a lot of people forget, is if you take the whole, the first drink or the first hit or the first snort or whatever it is you do, we are way past that. We are way past that. You cannot, I'm telling, you cannot take just one. It will digress into a world worse than when you started. So, and that really is what has kept me sober is somehow during my treatment that was ingrained in me. And I knew it to be true because that merry-go-round that I'd been on for the final three years of my drinking, that I just know that I can't take that one first drink or I lose everything. I lose my family. I lose my house. I lose everything. 
and I go right back to the ditch in Oklahoma City where that started all of this. It, it's, so anyway, that's how I was keeping sober. I would still go to meetings and um, to get a reminder, a tune-up as I call them. Um, was I going, you know, once or twice a week at this point? No, I wasn't. And maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but that's, this is how I recovered. So when my son was about eight years old, I started coaching his baseball team. And one of the mothers on his, uh, you know, one of the mothers of another player on the baseball team, she was an active runner. And she got me to go for a run with her and I hadn't trained. So th this is, you know, 12 years after my, my mountain climbing. So I was totally out of shape, but she got me to go run with her. And it was, it was just unbelievable. I mean, I just loved it. The, the challenge of it, the physical part of it. Cause when I was climbing, a big part of climbing was, was the endurance aspect of it. So when she asked me to go for a run, it just snowballed. Like everything else I've done, I can't do just a little. I've got to do a lot. And, you know, I've learned that about myself. And I look back at my alcoholic years or my drinking years, and I can see that that was my personality. I never did anything small. It was like, go big or go home. And, you know, as much as I would like to tone that down sometimes, that's just me. It's who I am. I, I, I can't change that so um her and i quickly decided we were going to do a half marathon you know we were running three miles and we thought we were like you know kings of running so her and i decided to do a half marathon and uh, i decided over that winter that i was going to make 2014 by yeah 2014 a year of athletic accomplishments and I was going to use it as a teaching tool for my son. My father had told me I was never going to amount to anything. So not the same message I wanted to give to my son. So I made 2000, the goal to 2014 to show my son that you can do whatever you want as long as you stick to it and don't give up. So in the process of, training for that half marathon. I signed up for 200 mile bike rides in Colorado and a marathon. And uh, I ended up meeting a lady online. I did a search um, about a bike ride that I was going to do. And I, I got back hundreds of, of um, you know, results from Google. And I clicked on one. Only one I clicked on was this, this lady's blog. And it told a story of this lady who in her early fifties went from couch potato to Iron Man. I read every story on this blog cause I was all fired up to run and everything else. Totally inspiring, completely just, I, I told her she needs to make it into a book because it's just totally inspiring. But I, uh, I contacted her via the contact link on her blog and lo and behold, a couple weeks later, she responded. I never dreamed she respond. And uh, we emailed back and forth a couple times. And, and before the half marathon, this lady who was in Colorado, who I'd never met before, never seen, she, uh, you know, I told her that I was worried about these bike rides that I, I had 
signed up for and that I can't fail because I'm supposed to be showing my son that you can do whatever you want. So I, uh, she volunteered to be my coach. I mean, unbelievable. I'm like, I didn't really know what a coach did, but she did. She showed me how endurance athletes train for big events. Um, and by this time I had decided I wanted to do a triathlon, you know, I didn't know how to swim and I had two near death experiences when I was younger, but she's like, Oh, no problem. You can do it. You can do it. Anyway, I'll shorten it up a little, but, um, so 2014 goes by. I, uh, you know, we were successful at the half marathon. My son was at the finish line. He got to see, see me finish. Um, I went to Colorado. I actually did the hundred mile bike ride with the lady that I had contacted. She was training for Ironman Arizona. Came back to Omaha, did another half marathon, did a marathon and, um, Decided then that I was going to do a, a full Ironman, which I don't know whether, you know, it's a 2.4 mile swim and a 112 mile bike ride. And then you do a marathon after that. So, but I didn't even know how to swim. And I made this goal before I uh, even knew how to swim. So she's, you know, once I got done middle of the summer, she's like, go take a swim lesson. So I, I go to Lifetime and uh, this girl shows up and says, okay, you know, get in the pool, show me what you got. I put my swim cap on, put my goggles on. I'm about ready to dive in. And she's like, oh, stop, stop. Your goggles are on upside down. <laughs> Absolute true story. That's where I was at with swimming. And I, But I get in the pool, and I couldn't swim half a length of the pool without stopping. And uh, but anyway, you know, I happened to mention to her that I was thinking about doing this half Ironman or an a triathlon at the time it wasn't a half, you know and it was down in kansas you know south of nebraska i'm in lawrence and she's like oh i won that one last year i'm like what so i went home and i googled her and it turns out this person was a professional triathlete so in the span of a month i'd had a two-time iron man finisher volunteered to be my coach and another lady who was a professional triathlete you know teaching me to swim and I start thinking like this is this is odd hmm. I, I mean what you know can that be a coincidence Do you believe in coincidences or is it fate I don't know age-old question but so 2014 went by you know I did my marathon, my son actually got to be there at my, at the finish line. And I was so slow. He actually got to put the medal around my neck. You want to talk? Yeah. So blessed, you know, I mean, how many people get to do that? So that was 2014. And then my coach and I now coach, um, I call my wink from God. We, we had a plan for 2015 and it was nothing but triathlon for 2015 where I'm successful with all of them. 2015 also saw me meet a lady. Um, again, you know, is it a coincidence or not? But this lady um, was a collegiate cyclist when in her day 
Um, she had been on the Baylor cycling team and missed the Olympics by like three spots. And had also um, ridden her bike across the country for charity twice. I mean, San Diego to Georgia twice. So she taught me everything there was to know about long distance cycling. Um, she, she gave me the ultimatum after we had gotten closer that if this was going to continue that um, I had to make a commitment to get to know God more. So I did. And I started going to church and uh, I, my son and I, my son hadn't been baptized. I had never been baptized. So my son and I started taking um, the classes that you need to take in order to be baptized in the Lutheran church. Well, the gentleman that I took these classes from, the Pastor Mark, he was a two-time Ironman finisher. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's like a lot of coincidences, if you can believe they're coincidences in a row. So my son and I were baptized in the church in 2015. So that was a major milestone in my faith in God. Was uh, greatly increasing. I'm sorry. Oh no, no apologies for tears. Those are gratitude tears. Definitely. So, just another quote, quote coincidence. On one of the workouts in 2015, I was at a lake, and they they had a a, a group event where it was a group swim. And uh, I'm standing in the parking lot with Pastor Mark and another gentleman um, comes up and um, he's also a pastor and he's actually been to um, Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. I stood in the parking lot and uh, said a prayer before the swim with not one, but two Ironman pastors. So, I mean, how many people does that happen to? I mean, can you call it a coincidence? I'm not sure. Anyway, by this time, my coach and I, we had set a goal for um, Ironman Boulder in 2016. And, uh, you know, training for an Ironman, especially, you know, in two or three months before the race gets very involved, you know, it's, it's, it's a part-time job. It's a, it's a 30 hour, 25 hour, 30 hour a week, part-time job. And, uh, it was April, 2016. My race was in August. Um, I was out on my bike, you know, for my 80 mile bike ride that takes about six hours. And I'm riding away and, it, you know, all by myself, rural Nebraska. I mean, I, I mean, I'm 50 miles out from where I parked my car and pedaling away and reflecting on where I'd come from, you know, all the DUIs laying in a ditch in Oklahoma and graduating from school, climbing mountains all over the world, my son, my family, my job, and just thinking about how blessed I am, you know. And it was then 
that that prayer that I said to God on the, the porch of that farmhouse came back to me. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, and it was then that I realized that, you know, God had more than kept his end of the bargain. Mm. So, and I realized I hadn't, you know, had it not been for that quiet time of being out there on my bike. I don't think I would have remembered that prayer ever. And it became apparent then that all these things, people that happened in my life for some reason, God wanted me to do a triathlon. I, I mean, those could not all be coincidences. So it dawned on me then that what God has given me is a story to tell. And that's how I can repay. So the rest of that summer training for my Ironman, you know, I'm like, that's got to be it. I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do. You know, what can I do to repay? And I know that's not how it works now, but I really was kind of in the dark when I made a promise, but I did make a promise. So, um, that's when I decided that it was my story that he wants me to tell other people to hopefully give people hope and mainly to show that when you're given a second chance of sobriety, that the possibilities are only limited by how big you can dream. I never even thought of doing an Ironman triathlon. I never dreamed I would ever climb mountains in Argentina and Alaska, but it, it, God put all this stuff in my path and it just, you know, my point is not to tell you all these great things I've done, but to show you the possibilities of what you can do with a second chance you can do, you can get a college degree. You can, you can have a career, you can have homes, you can do whatever you want. My, my advice was don't dream too small because you can have it and you know, dream big, dream big because it's more rewarding. The bigger your dream, it's more rewarding when you get there. I worked for two and a half years to be an Ironman. And uh, when I was coming up on the finish line for my Ironman finish, you know, at the end of the marathon, I was, you know, I was reflecting on everything that I had been through. And, uh, you know, by now I'm convinced that God did have his hand in the whole thing, you know, and a couple miles out, I can hear from the finish line, I can hear, you know, the people, there's a huge crowd and Ironman finish line is unbelievable, but I'm not just thinking about the race. I'm, I, I couldn't help but think about 
everything else I had been through. And, uh, you know, I crossed the finish line and, uh, just as you can tell, I'm an emotional person, but I was just crying like a baby and everybody there. And I heard a, a few people kind of snickering, you know, that how emotional I was, but what they didn't realize is that I was thinking about coming through all the DUIs and being in a ditch in Oklahoma city. And then how blessed I was to, to not only finish an Ironman, but to be alive. And, uh, you know, I know that God did this, not for me. I think I was just a collateral benefactor of his plan. And his plan was for me to help other people, not... You know, I was lucky because I was a part of his plan. But he didn't do this for me. He did it for all the people that I can potentially help. So I, uh, that's what I have done for the past four years is to to, to go and tell my story at recovery centers and, and wherever I can to hopefully show people that there is a life after drugs and alcohol. And it can be, uh, it can be whatever you, you want it to be. It can be whatever you dream it to be, you know, make your big, your dreams big because they can come true. I mean, I am living proof that it can be done. Yeah, you are, Wayne. Oh, your story is unbelievable. It's so inspiring. Um, I got very emotional listening to you share with such vulnerability and courage to be vulnerable. And and I and I have to say, like you know, I'm looking at your website right now, and it's the soul of phoenix.com wayne meyer substance abuse speaker and there's a picture of you on the top of a mountain saying dream big and never give up and i just saying this for the listeners that when when we are sober when people like wayne and i are sober there you can't put a price tag on it. You could, can't put any amount of money to the feelings that we have when we get sober and we experience life without putting toxins into our body. Wayne does not charge one penny for his services and he's willing to travel anywhere without, with no charge because of <clears throat> of as you've heard his his in, just incredible gratitude that he has about being sober and things that he's gotten through and thing that things that he's achieved because of sobriety and how he's modeled so beautifully to his son what it means to 
be a human um, with integrity and with humility and that anything is possible willing to dream big like you and when we're sober it's a lot easier that's for sure yeah there's no way that some of this there's no way that i would have made it through any of this um had i still been drinking there's just no way you know so, so. Wayne, i i have to ask um you know has there you know you uh, I don't know if there's much more, more, uh, much more to say with regards to your gratitude because it's palpable. Um, but w was there anything in the course of your life that was in, in the course of your sober life that was completely unexpected? Um, that that was transformative that or the biggest gratitude that occurred that was so unexpected is there anything else i, I mean a lot of great yes Go ahead. The, the, the one thing not one there's like like you said i i have so many things to be grateful for and uh what my biggest thing that I think I am grateful for that has come about because of the, the experiences I've been through is my relationship with God. I, uh, you know, when it all started, like I said, I wasn't sure that God even existed, but through you know, it took a, a lifetime of experiences. It wasn't one moment. It's a collective, you know, lifetime of events that has proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that I do have a higher power. And he is there working for me all the time. And he was even before I asked for help, you know. So that is the biggest thing that it didn't come about at one time. It wasn't an aha moment, although it was on my bike when I realized that he had been helping me. I mean, literally, I, I, I rode home that day 40 miles back to my car. And uh, I didn't remember any of the ride. So it, that was definitely a moment when, when I realized that, that God was on my side and always had been. But it, it took, you know, a lifetime of collective events for me to get there. And, you know, I mean, I don't see how there can be much anything bigger than that. Wow, Wayne, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for being a part of my podcast family of celebrating the hope and recovery because your, your life is a testament to that. There is so much to celebrate when we recover. And um, I'm just so grateful for, for your courage to be vulnerable and to tell the, and to share your truth because you, you will absolutely help people um, in sharing this story so, 
So thank you so much. I, I feel so much gratitude today to know you and know your story and have been connected to you. And I, and I wish you all the luck in, um, well, you know, I don't know if I want to say luck, but you know, things will happen in, in God's time. Right. And, and, and very much so he has a plan for all of us. That is so clear now. Yeah. And I appreciate you having, having me on, um, you know, what you're doing is, is, you know, so much so needed and, giving people the platform to tell their story and to help all the people that listen. So thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Um, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Wayne. Well, you know, we, we talked before the recording that at, at one point we talked a few times and I think we shared about, you know, recovery podcasts and how I, how I love being a part of this genre of podcasts because there's really no, in my experience, there hasn't been competition between recovery podcasters because we all seem to have the same mission, which is we want to help others. Like we want to, we want to share the good news of life after active addiction, that it's possible and it's better and it's amazing. And so when I hear of other podcasters doing what I'm doing or doing what I'm doing to one degree or or another, if it's talking about recovery and helping others, I want to let people know about that podcast. And I've had plenty of other podcasters, you know, promote my podcast saying, oh, listen to hers. And I've done the same for other podcasters because I feel like we're kind of in this together and it's great that we can support each other. And so I wouldn't be surprised, Wayne, if another podcast snatches you up, at least I would say, you know, down the line, you're going to hear from some others who want you to share their story, your story on their podcast as well. Um, if not, and, and then in terms of your willingness to, to physically go places and share your story, there's nothing like hearing a story of, of active addiction into recovery that just is so profoundly moving. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's wonderful that we can have the airwaves um, especially nowadays during this coronavirus where we're all somewhat isolated that we can still hear these, these beautiful stories. And, and Wayne, your story is unbelievably beautiful. It's just incredible. And 34 years this Tuesday, you said yes, 34, yep, years. 34 I, years. What a, I mean, what coincidences here. We, I don't know. Is this a coincidence or fate that we're <laughs> a few days before? So, um, There's no such thing as coincidences. Yeah. I learned, learned that for sure. Well, great. Well, Wayne, I hope you have a beautiful weekend. Thank you again. And, um, and, and, and congratulations on 34 years and all the best to you on a beautiful day. Thank life. you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it. Mm -hmm.